0: A note from the Smart family. The statute of limitations in this case has expired on everything except murder. Anyone who comes forward with information will not be charged with any crime.
1: After the ground-penetrating radar search of Susan Flores' backyard in 2007 and up through 2010, investigators received no significant information that leads to the location of Kristen Smart's body. Dennis Mann continues his campaign of keeping the Flores family on their toes, though, marching with banners and signs around the Central Coast, and posting regular updates to his website, sonofsusan.com. As Sheriff Ed Williams very publicly admitted in 1997, there's not much progress that can be made on the case without Flores's cooperation. And in 1998, Williams retires without making any significant break in the case. His successor, Patrick Hedges, is equally unsuccessful in locating Kristen Smart, charging anyone with her kidnapping or murder, or communicating with the Smart family in Stockton. In fact, Hedges' entire career as the Sheriff of San Luis Obispo is bogged down by scandals, and by the end, total public distrust. In 2007, one of his chief deputies discovers that Sheriff Hedges and his undersheriff Steve Bolts, who was once the lead detective on the Kristen Smart case, have bugged his office and been secretly videotaping him, believing him to be disloyal and possibly engaging in criminal behavior, a suspicion that ends up being baseless. When news about the illegal wiretapping becomes public, the sheriff docks himself $700, or the equivalent of a single day's pay, as a way to punish himself for spying on his own employee. The deputy isn't satisfied with that response and sues the sheriff for just over a million dollars for violating his privacy. He gets just half of that, but it's enough for Hedge's constituents to lose faith in him entirely. In addition to the bugging incident, several lawsuits are filed against the sheriff's department during Hedge's time in office, when suspects in custody die while being restrained, and in at least one case, hogtied. Even in his personal life, Hedges fails to maintain a respectable image. In January of 2009, his wife calls the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department on the San Luis Obispo Sheriff, claiming that he's screaming at her and refusing to let her leave their house. Sheriff's deputies show up but decide it's not necessary to take a report on the incident. Two months later, the couple separates and Pat Hedges announces that he will not seek re election. In an emailed press release, He claims that his biggest disappointment is not being able to bring a prosecutable case forward on the Kristen Smart disappearance. In 2010, all of the new candidates for his job make sure to distance themselves from him to avoid being pulled into his undertow. Years later, Hedges will briefly make headlines again when he crashes his truck into a power pole and fire hydrant in the middle of the night. He's not arrested, and San Luis Obispo police will claim no drugs or alcohol were involved. The Smart Family's luck with law enforcement leadership in San Luis Obispo would almost be comical if it wasn't so tragically responsible for keeping their daughter's case from being solved. But in 2011, it looks like that luck is about to change, because there's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Ian Parkinson. In his interview with DA investigators on June 19, 1996, the interview I've referenced several times, where Paul admitted to lying about how he got his black eye, and then asked if he could go home to clean up concrete at his mom's house, there was a moment where they thought Paul was about to confess. As they pressed him on details, pointing out that his timeline wasn't making sense, and adding that another student had seen him at 5am in the communal dorm showers, Paul started to hunch over into a fetal position folding his legs up and pulling his arms inside of his t-shirt. But instead of folding under pressure, he responded, If you're so smart, then tell me where the body is. And the investigators don't know. In early December of 1996, private investigator Susie McCaney is in a dry creek bed off Wasna Road. She's been hired by the Smarts to follow up on Leeds, which they believe the sheriff's department has started to run out of. With her is a cadaver dog handler named Greg and his dog, Jax. They're looking for the body of Kristen Smart not based on any solid leads, but because of the map in Susie's hand, drawn by a psychic from Thousand Oaks who calls herself Kathy Lynn. The map shows a road that winds over a steep drop-off, beneath which she's drawn four large boulders at the base next to an oak tree, with water flowing on the opposite side. A Nostradamus-like quatrain reads, quote, wedged between a boulder and a rock wall, hair on one end and a shoe on the other, red fabric or paper by her head. Susie McKinney doesn't have much hope for the search.
2: Good leads are like right away. And so I think that we lost 30 days, the first 30 days. My job was just to run these um, search teams, Some of it was based on psychics. Some of it was based on, you know, facts. Do I believe in psychics? Well, you know, I haven't found the body yet. (laughs) I did work with one psychic, Marla. She was amazing. She'd come up from L.A. every weekend and do this search. But still, Marla hasn't found me the body. I worked with Dorothy Allison as well. She took my keys and told me about my husband. And that night, she told him where his mother was born. I didn't even know where his mother was born. I worked with this other guy who had four cases, and the four cases, he found three bodies. But the fourth one, which was Christmas one, he couldn't find. Nobody has actually led me to the body.
1: Even though she can't explain how they've done it, She believes that some psychics have solved cases like this in the past, so she's reluctantly following up on everything the Smart family receives. Law enforcement will usually treat psychics like any other informant. They look into the information to see if it matches information they already know. Because there's always the chance that the person claiming to be psychic is actually coming forward with first-hand knowledge, which they don't want to explain how they discovered. The Sheriff's Department also searches Wozna in 1996, but because their files are private, I don't know why. But there have been rumors that Paul used to hang out in the area. One of his classmates tells me he was kicked out of at least one party there in high school. And in 2004, this tip was sent anonymously to Dennis Mann's website, sonofsusan.com. My last roommate used to live near Paul in Wozna, or Arroyo Grand. And used to stay up all night with him after the murder because he was involved with methamphetamines. She has never lied to me. And she told me that one night Paul admitted to her that he killed Kristen. And that she is buried very near his old residence in Wasna. People say a lot of things when they are on meth. I think he was telling the truth. And he was really laughing in the face of police because he had buried her in such an obvious spot where they have probably never even looked i hope my tip can help in any way i don't seek reward i just want to see that bastard get what he deserves the author of that tip has never come forward if you know who might have written it please reach out to me for all of these reasons the wasna area has piqued my interest over the past year last october i met a girl who it turns out has lived in wasna her whole life so I ask if she's heard any of the rumors that Kristen Smart is buried there. She's too young to remember the details, but her mom has told her about it. And she vividly recalls a time in the late 90s when on one of their hikes through an isolated creek bed, her mother seems startled to come across a woman's shoe. I am driving out to Wozna, to meet a family who says they found a shoe out here in the mid to late 90s. The daughter was only about four at the time, but she says she remembers it well because she thought it was strange the way her mom reacted to finding something as boring as a shoe, so it stuck out in her memory. So they've agreed to take me down to the spot where they found the shoe to have a look around and see if it might tie into any of those other Wozner rumors. Wasna is an unincorporated community, about 10 miles east of Arroyo Grande, towards the mountains and away from the ocean. I've never been out here before, and I can't help but take note of how much space is here. The road often runs alongside creek beds, surrounded by thick groves of trees that make it hard to see what's between them unless you're right up under them. And even if you could park and climb down the roadside, Everything is surrounded by barbed wire fences and rusty hubcaps hand-painted with the words no trespassing, riddled with bullet holes from rebellious hunters who don't like to be told what to do. Houses out here are often a mile or more apart, and the private driveway to get up to the family's house is longer than the whole street I live on. Hello. Where do go? In my cup? Okay. Is that okay? Or do you Absolutely. To no, that's fine. Up to my okay. Yeah. Back seat here. <laughs> come on Thank, you.
3: Thank you. So, I used to take all the neighborhood kids on these hikes. And, you know, the one time I saw the shoe, but I just left it there because I knew the police either. I'm, this is where my memory is not serving me great. Either mm-hmm. they had been there, and there was rumor they were going to come and return. Okay. Or they hadn't come.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you remember what year this
3: was? Um, I'm thinking, so my son was born in 98. Mm-hmm. And he was not walking. I had him in a front pack. Okay. So, he was born in June of 98. So, I feel like it was 99, like early... Mm-hmm. And it was a rainy season. We used to hike up here because we went looking for... There's a little, like, waterfall. Mm-hmm. So it was green like this. I feel like it could have been February or March.
1: If her memory is accurate, investigators had already searched here by then. According to newspapers, on November 1, 1996, five months after Kristen was reported missing, sheriff's detectives searched a quote, confined area of Wazna. One month later, Susie McCaney, the private investigator, returned to the area with Jax the cadaver dog and the hand-drawn map from psychic Kathy Lynn, along with her tip, wedged between a boulder and a rock wall, hair on one end and a shoe on the other, red fabric or paper by her head. In the first year, the Smart family followed up on every lead they received, desperate to find their daughter, But after an overwhelming amount of psychic tips, some of them useless or nonsensical, they stop jumping in their car to investigate everyone. I imagine it gets exhausting to put your faith in anyone who claims to be channeling information, especially when that information is as trivial as what world-renowned psychic Dorothy Allison had to say about the case. Quote, the killer has little ears. We've driven about a mile up the road further into the heart of Wasna, The trail the family used to hike down is private property now, but they've asked the owners for permission to bring me down to the spot where they found the shoe, and they've agreed. Yeah,
3: yeah and they can get out too if they have to go to town. There's a,
4: there's a trail a little bit uh, The owner,
1: a tall man in his 70s, even follows us down the steep hillside with a shovel, clearing brush and poison oak out of our way. All right. It's raining lightly, and at one point on the hike down, I slip and fall hard, but I don't think anybody notices.
4: Hey, get the fence line there, yeah. just from a legal standpoint, we're not giving you permission to uh, do right. that.
3: Yeah, exactly. we got it. ourselves in trouble, it's us. <laughs> I
5: don't
3: want to do anything.
1: Once we're at the bottom of the hill, it's a long walk through muddy grass and over fallen trees. The mother points out several more poison oak plants for me to avoid and I carefully step around them. It takes just over ten minutes to find the spot we're looking for, where the shoe used to be, but it looks just like I was picturing. The bottom of a steep hillside, the ground covered in dried oak leaves and acorn shells, and several dead trees shooting up above it. I've never put much faith in psychics. But it's hard not to notice that this place is eerily similar to the picture Kathy Lynn drew of the spot where she said Kristen's body could be found. A crooked country road above us, a steep rock wall below that I'm looking up at now, the oak tree I'm standing under, and the sound of water flowing in the distance. The fact that the psychic's vision specifically mentioned a shoe makes my spine tingle.
3: The neighbor kids would come with us because we'd all hike up here and there is a waterfall somewhere. And I remember, I think it was on the same time when we hiked up the hill, there was a huge rainbow. So I think I like remember it super well for that reason. But I do remember her seeing a shoe. She didn't like, say anything about it, obviously, because we were little kids. Yeah. <laughs> but I used to, we used to find stuff all the time, like bottles and cans and stuff. So it wasn't like super weird that there was a shoe, I guess. But I definitely always remembered it. And then when I got older, when I'd bring friends up here, I'd tell them, like, oh, my mom found a shoe up here at one time, it was so weird. I mean, it was flattened, had no heel, it was red. I think it was red, like patent leather, leather, not shiny. It was way bigger than my feet, and I'm like a seven. Well, six and a half. Well, six and a half, yeah, but it was a bigger (laughs) shoe than my feet. And I just thought, well, I better just leave it here, because, and it could have just fallen out of someone's car driving, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't know why it was there. And I just thought, if somebody needs to see it, it's here yeah but I didn't make any phone calls or anything I just yeah Yeah. I just thought it was weird things do fall out of cars it was just that it was one shoe you know and it was just it looked like it had been there for a while It didn't look brand-new it looked kind of but it didn't look like it had been there for 10 years not an old-fashioned shoe. No, it was not a, no, it was a it was a current shoe. Which is, like in a time frame. It's of, weird Yeah, it is. I know I thought it was weird.
1: You said you found bottles and all kinds of stuff yeah. down here all the time. Why did the shoe stand out to you at that point? Why did you stop and even think twice about it?
3: Because it was a piece of clothing, and because I knew they had searched here, and it was a woman's shoe, mm-hmm. that's why it stood yeah. out to me upside down, so you see the sole of the foot, but you see the edges are red, but I left it right where it was. Yeah. Probably <laughs> still out here somewhere. It probably is buried under all
1: this. I'm sure you've heard sense that she disappeared in red shoes, right? No. You didn't know that? No. Yeah. She has no idea that Kristen was last seen wearing a pair of red shoes, just like the one she found. I tell her that Kristen was reportedly wearing a pair of Puma brand athletic shoes. And while she can't recall every detail 20 years later, she doesn't remember this shoe having laces on it, maybe more like a loafer or flat. But it was also upside down, and she didn't touch it. I check with Puma, and they do make a red woman's loafer, but I don't think it qualifies as an athletic shoe. So maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's not the shoe we're looking for. But still. If sheriff's investigators and search parties did a thorough search of this area in 1996, then how did they miss a woman's red shoe that caught this mother's attention, which she describes as weathered and flattened, as if it had been there for several years? Is it possible that this shoe was buried in 1996 and uncovered by rainfall over the next few years? Or is it possible that this particular area was never checked? How many other areas? have never been checked. Even if it's not Kristen's shoe, the fact that it remained untouched here for years makes me wonder what else is down here, hidden in plain sight. At least one man, who asked not to be identified, says he saw Ruben Flores driving a truck through Wasna, followed closely by another pickup truck, with a male driver who he didn't get a good look at. He places the time as Memorial Day Weekend 1996, because it was the same weekend as Arroyo Grande's annual strawberry festival. Too much time has passed now to verify this, but if any member of the Flores family was out in Wasner around that time, it's probably a good place to search. For months... Stan Smart follows up on every psychic tip the family receives, driving thousands of miles to wherever someone says his daughter could be. Occasionally, friends from Napa join him, and the apple farm in Slow lets them stay for free. In June of 1996, they search Lopez Lake, Santa Margarita Lake, Cuesta Grade, and the dunes south of Morro Bay, but turn up nothing. Stan crawls through tunnels and creek beds and hikes up mountains in 100-plus degree weather and never gets any closer to finding Kristen. But he doesn't feel like any of it was a waste of time. After people would tell you where they thought she was and you went and looked and she wasn't, how did you feel? Did you feel taken advantage of No,
4: not at all. Most, I would say everybody that I encountered, no one asked for money uh, or notoriety. They were trying to be helpful. Now, obviously, the notoriety, if they were a uh, seer, an <laughs> astrologist, etc., a dowser numerologist, then they might want notoriety and they might want money. But uh, most people were uh, concerned for us, concerned for her, totally. And, and uh, when we had large groups of people go out on searches, you know, maybe 25 or 30 people, Uh, merchants would provide sandwiches and water and i mean really nice wonderful things so i can only speak highly of the people that uh you know live in san luis obispo and arroyo grande people were awfully nice you know as i went around looking for her if i said or i came to somebody's property and the gate was locked or whatever and i wanted to look inside and they let this strange man, looking for his daughter, go and look for her, which was awfully nice, you know, I mean, that speaks highly of the community. There were several people that were involved that thought they knew where our daughter was located, and we would go follow up on that and look, and and there wasn't anybody that we turned away. Uh, you know, we, I would drive up to Tahoe and Reno. A person said, oh, she was in a vehicle going there. We found her on a map, and then she was down Cal Poly, you know. And I would go down there and go, you go anywhere looking for your daughter. And so if somebody said they spotted her, but it's not her. You get your hopes up, but they get dashed pretty quickly. So, but you never turn away. You don't want to be the person that didn't follow up on something that, you know, could be real.
1: A popular theory on the Cal Poly campus was that Kristen's body was concealed beneath the foundation of the Performing Arts Center, or the PAC which was directly across the street from the red bricks and in construction at the time. Construction had been ongoing since 1994, and the first events in the center took place in July of 1996, so it seems like much of the foundation should have been set by May, but proponents of this theory are adamant that it wasn't. To bury her in an active construction site, though, would mean risking that a worker would spot her remains while pouring the foundation. Still, like any other theory, it can't be ruled out entirely until Kristen is found early on someone sent an anonymous card to the smart family that seconded this theory at the bottom the author wrote quote i did not have anything to do with this i swear i will use the name jellybean investigators took the tip seriously going so far as to compare the handwriting to samples of individuals close to the case 23 years later Jelly Bean has never come forward. If you know this person's identity, please reach out to me. Another theory, and the one that made the most sense to Stan smart for many years, was that Kristen's body was put in the dumpster behind Santa Lucia Hall. Paul Flores's dorm room was on the ground floor, and had a window that faced the back parking lot, which I measured as just 85 feet away from the dumpster. A garbage truck picked up on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m., so the timing would have been convenient. After that, the contents would have been dumped at the Cold Canyon landfill. But according to the landfill supervisor, each dump was carefully logged and sorted by date and location, and employees have to pick through the incoming garbage one load at a time to make sure that no hazardous materials are present. Besides that, sheriff's detectives spent a few days digging in the section where Cal Poly garbage was taken, And reportedly dug down until they unearthed issues of the Mustang Daily from before Kristen's disappearance. Could her body have been missed? Of course. But the one thing that's missing from the dumpster theory and the pack theory that makes me doubt them is Ruben Flores.
2: He had to have called somebody for help. Paul's not, you know, he's not the brightest um, person. If you can recall when you were that young, I mean, who would you call? My theory is that he called Ruben.
1: It's a theory that Susie developed early on, that only got stronger the more she investigated. And it's a theory that Susie and I share. Remember the person who reportedly saw Ruben, and another driver in two separate pickup trucks, out in Wozna over Memorial Day weekend? I want to talk about those trucks. Paul's parents bought him a 1993 Ford Ranger in high school, Mint Green. There's a picture of him posing with it in the Arroyo Grande High School yearbook. This is the truck he would let his coworker Lisa from Garlands borrow, and the truck Jackie's neighbors saw parked up her street when she found dead roses on her fence. Reuben owned a white 1985 Nissan pickup truck. So that's something. The Flores family did own two pickup trucks in 1996, just like The Witness reported seeing. Ruben Flores was deposed by the SMART's attorney, James Murphy, on November 14, 1997, the same day Paul took the Fifth Amendment to every question he was asked. But Ruben doesn't have the same privilege. His deposition was videotaped, and James Murphy's office gave me a copy of the tape.
6: The deposition is being being videotaped. Um, Would you please swear the witness?
0: Raise your right hand, please.
1: The VHS tape was slightly warped in places, so occasionally you'll hear it slow down for a second, and the mic sometimes feeds back a little. But it's a great reference of Reuben's story this many years later. When the topic of the trucks comes up, Ruben's answers are conspicuously inconsistent.
6: Who had use of that Ford Ranger in May of 96? No one had use of it. and No one was using it in May of 96. And why do you say no one was using it? Because it was impounded.
1: But then a few minutes later.
6: Sunday morning after the disappearance of Kristen Smart, how did Paul get to school? I picked the him up book? at school. Right. And you picked him up in what vehicle? The Ranger.
1: The Ranger that nobody had access to in May of 1996 because it was impounded. And did Paul ever have access to Ruben's 85 Nissan?
6: Would Paul drive that vehicle?
1: Mm. No. And then a few minutes later,
6: Well, it was registered to Paul. And when when was the change in registration from you to Paul? I don't know.
1: In other depositions taken with Paul's co workers, several of them confirmed that he regularly drove the white 1985 Nissan to work in the summer of 1996. And then it was registered to Paul sometime between then and the deposition in November of 1997. So when Reuben says Paul didn't drive that vehicle, he's not telling the truth. And when he says nobody had access to the Ranger in May of 1996, he's lying. Then there's the issue of the bed liner, the plastic component that pops into the inner bed of a pickup truck to protect it from being scratched or stained. If a body was in the back of either truck, the bed liners could be tested for DNA.
6: The white uh, Nissan uh, truck, hat, did it have a bed liner in it? Yes. And in fact, um, how long had that bedliner been in that vehicle? The same one, or different ones? Well, let, let's start with. Um, uh, in May of 1996, was the bedliner changed? No, it's the same. Okay. One. Okay. So, if if I were to go back to May 1st of 1996. I would see a bedliner in your vehicle. Yes. Okay. And how long had that bedliner been in the vehicle prior to May of 96? Several years. After May of 1996, isn't it true that the bedliner was changed? No. Um, did you at any time after May of 1996 uh, purchase a new bedliner? For the vehicle, no the Nissan truck. To, to your knowledge, did your son Paul Forrest, purchase a new bedliner for the vehicle? No.
1: But watch what happens when Murphy hints that he has a witness who says otherwise.
6: Um, do you have any recollection of making any statement to any individual that you were going to change the bedliner as a birthday present for your son? I think we got two things mixed up here. Okay. How am I mixed up? Well,
7: what's a, a can you define a bedliner for me?
1: Now Ruben doesn't even know what a bedliner is, but he told at least one person that he got Paul a new plastic bedliner for his truck as a birthday present. There are holes and contradictions all throughout Ruben's story of the events of that Memorial Day weekend, and a lot of them revolve around the Flores family's two trucks. I can't figure out what his motive would be for changing his story about them so many times if they weren't involved in a crime in some way. So were the trucks ever searched by law enforcement? No. Neither one. Since his answers about the trucks are looking suspicious now, why don't they search them after the deposition?
6: Where is that vehicle now? We traded it in on another vehicle. Okay, and where did you trade it in?
7: Tyson Johnson.
1: So the 1993 Ford Ranger is gone by 1997, a four-year-old vehicle traded in for another one. And the white 1985
6: Nissan? You still own that vehicle? No. When did you sell that vehicle? It, it was stolen. Okay. And when was it stolen? A month or two ago. And. Um... From where was it parked when it was stolen? San Diego. And uh, did you report the theft of that vehicle to the San Diego Police Department? I didn't. Who did? Paul. Uh, Did Paul tell you anything about how the vehicle wound up being stolen? He drove to San Diego. And what was he doing in San Diego? I don't know. Do you know if he was visiting family? I do not know. Do you know if he, uh, if you're, if Paul has family in San Diego? Not to my knowledge. Do you know if Paul has friends in San Diego? Not to my knowledge. Do you know where the vehicle was parked at the time it was last seen? No. The, um, had you given the vehicle uh, to Paul for his use? Yes.
1: Except if the Nissan was stolen a month or two before the deposition. That would have been September or October of 1997, when Paul was living with his sister in Irvine and working at Outback Steakhouse with Melinda, who had to give Paul rides home because he didn't have a vehicle or a valid driver's license. In the entire time she knew him, Melinda told me she never saw him with a vehicle. So how did his dad's white Nissan get registered in Paul's name, and then driven to San Diego where he apparently doesn't have any friends or family? and then left somewhere to be stolen. I have no idea. But both trucks are gone within a year and a half of Kristen's disappearance, and Ruben's answers about them seem evasive. It's not the only question he's evasive about. Ruben works for GTE, General Telephone and Electronics, as a payphone technician. His job is to repair, install, maintain, and collect money from payphones on a circuitous route. But he absolutely avoids answering questions about what that route is. Some of the payphones are in rural areas, which Murphy obviously wants a list of, but Rubens squints and studies the ceiling every time he's asked where any of those payphones are, or even where the local GTE office is.
6: Do you have a particular route that you cover um, in in the process of servicing, collecting, repairing, and maintaining payphones? Different routes, um, and is it a different route uh, every day that you No, did? most the same. Okay. Um, in May of nineteen ninety-six, what would your typical route have been? You would start the morning at work at where? Well, well what what? The question now. Uh, what I want to know is in May of 1996, you were employed by General Telephone, yes. correct? And you have described that your activities in your employment were to maintain yes. pay phones. And uh, I had asked you whether or not there was a route that you took, and you indicated that generally there is a route that you would take, correct? Yes. And who who established what that route was?
7: The computer.
6: And do you receive a computer printout from your no. company? laptop. Okay, and is it a laptop computer that is with you in the vehicle? Yes. And you simply reference the laptop computer for instructions on where to go? Yes. So, as I've never worked for the phone company, mm-hmm. you don't just stop and check every payphone along a route, correct? Not usually. You, you, are you generally assigned to specific locations where there is a problem with a payphone?
7: Yes, or collections.
6: Okay. Now, do you have a, re- a responsibility to go to certain payphones on a regular basis and collect the money out? Yes. And is that a generally known route, meaning do you have to go to your computer to find out where you're going to go when you're collecting? Or yes. do you simply have a collection route that you take on a regular the basis? The computers,
7: it's on the computer.
6: Alright, um, would it be fair to say that, say for example in May of 1996, that you would on a regular basis collect money out of all of the phones on your route? Yes. Okay, on a typical day when you were going to be doing collections, uh, would you, what would the route be that you would take? You start off at
7: your home in the morning? No, start off at at my designated
6: uh, place. Uh, designated meaning by the computer? No, wherever the foreman uh, puts me. And then how often would you go and collect money, uh, make your loop and collect money from the pesos? Every day. And. Um, where would you describe to me in general your your first stop and then your the path of travel that you would normally follow, if in fact you do follow a normal path of travel, to collect this money out of the phones?
7: Whatever the computer tells me. Right.
6: If you collect a phone, do you collect a phone money every day from every phone on your route? No. Do you collect uh, money um, from the pay phones on some type of regular basis, that is, go to rural Arroy Grande on one day, Pismo Beach on another day? How does it work?
7: Whatever the computers gives me the route, the computer routes.
6: Right. And the, the where is the main office where the computer routes would be maintained? Or where? I don't know. Okay, where is the main office for General Telephone in this area? The
7: headquarters of General Telephone is um, GTE, number one, GTE Place, Thousand Oaks.
6: Does, uh, does your foreman have a local office out of which he works? Yes. And where would that local office be?
7: That's confidential.
6: I would like to have a physical address of. Where the phone company office is, where your foreman well, work it's confidential, and if you want
7: information, you call General Telephone number one. GTE plays Thousand Oaks, and and if they feel they want to give you the information, we're in the communications field, and 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 that's what I you
6: know. Well, with all due respect, I'm uh, investigating the disappearance of yes. the Smart's daughter, and um, I'm not overly concerned about your assessment of confidentiality. Um, I would like to um, have the witness give me the physical address so that I can serve an appropriate subpoena to obtain his routes at or about the time of this incident. And I think I would be entitled to that information. If you, Mr. Coach can think of a way that this can be handled I think I think if you subpoena it from Thousand Oaks, that's the main office that compiles all the records.
1: And when the questions move to his route in May of 1996, he's even more hesitant to answer.
6: What, in May of 96, what would be the most rural phone or phones that you would service as a technician? Where would they be physically located? Do you
8: understand the question?
7: Yes. Okay. Understand well, no, thing. I don't give my location of employment. Okay. We have a thousand Oaks, so how do I don't give the location of of the
6: most rural telephone of where I, I work? No, I don't think he was asking that question. Okay, let me let me rephrase it. Um, can you tell me what is the most rural location of a payphone in the Arroyo Grande area that you would service in May of '96? General Telephone is not in the Arroyo Grande area. So there would be no phones in the Rio Grande City area that would be G general telephone. Right. What is the what is the nearest area to where you live in Rio Grande that there are GTE phones that you service? The
7: nearest one. Dick's door on Kuyama."
1: Another line of questioning that Ruben tries to avoid centers on an incident that happened back in Torrance, before the Flores family moved up to Arroyo Grande. In fact, right before they moved. It's an incident that demonstrates Paul's ability to become dangerously violent and his parents' total denial of their son's guilt. In 1991, while he was in 8th grade at Birtland Middle School, Paul got into a fight that put another kid in the hospital. Actually, fight might be the wrong word to use. Paul flew into a rage and beat a 7th grader in the head until he had to be taken to the hospital. The Floreses know all about it because the other kid was so badly injured, they were ordered by a court to repay his medical expenses. It was also recommended that they send Paul to anger management, but they refused. So admitting that their son has a history of violence when he's being sued for the wrongful death of a girl who was last seen alive with him isn't something Susan and Ruben are willing to do. In fact, during the deposition in 1997, it takes a lot of questioning for Ruben to even acknowledge that he knows which incident that Murphy is asking about. I've slightly edited this clip for time without changing the context.
6: In the past, prior to the commencement of this lawsuit, To your knowledge, has your son been sued for some, for any act of misconduct or allegation of misconduct by him?
7: There was a settlement, but I don't understand it.
6: All right. I'd like to ask you some questions about the settlement. Were you involved in the um, strike that. Was your son a minor at the time that a person made a claim against him for damages in a civil action?
7: What civil action is this?
6: There was a settlement in a case that involved your son, correct?
7: Well, can you put the horse in front of the wagon and start telling me what claim and what action before we get to... Going well, backwards because I don't understand what claims are, I don't understand what judgments are, I don't understand what okay, right. anything is.
6: Okay, you use the word settlement, and settlement suggests to me that somebody paid some money to someone else. Is that your understanding of what a settlement is? Yes. And is it your understanding that someone paid some money to somebody else because of something your son was alleged to yeah. have done? I'm not sure.
7: I believe there was a settlement, but I'm not sure.
6: What is your understanding of what your son is alleged to have done to cause someone to pay a settlement on his behalf? Uh, Where was this at? Well, you had indicated that there was a settlement in a case. But I don't understand. We're
7: talking about the same thing. What are you talking about?
6: I want to know what your son did to make somebody pay money to somebody else. But where was this at? Well, was were there, was there more than one settlement? Where was the
7: one you're speaking about? Is a settlement? Are you speaking of a Pacific settlement? Yes. And what settlement is this?
6: The settlement that you told me was paid. I believe. I'm not sure. Well, okay.
7: could you be specific?
6: Sure. Were you living in Torrance at a time that your son got in a fight with another individual? Oh, that's what you're talking about. That's yes. okay.
1: Yeah, that settlement. And listen to how Reuben describes the incident.
6: What is it that your son was alleged to have done to this other person? There were three persons. Okay. Okay. Who were the three persons that were involved in this incident that we're generally talking about? Uh, What's their names? Yeah. I don't know. Was your son accused of inflicting injury on someone when you lived in Torrance, resulting in farmers paying some money to the person who got injured? Yes. Did your son injure one person or three persons? I believe one. You had said that uh, something about there being three persons. What did you mean by that?
7: Three kids jumped on him
6: at school. So, three kids jumped on your son at school. Yes. And then there was a fight, obviously, that occurred, correct?
7: Between four of them, my boy and three others. others.
6: And what were the injuries suffered by the person who received the money from farmers? I don't. Um, did 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 you talk to your son about the fight that occurred when three people jumped on your son? and uh, ultimately Farmers paid some money to some. Yes. What did your son tell you happened in the fight?
7: He was walking on a playground, and three kids came and started harassing him and pushing him around, and he pushed back, and they grabbed him from the back, a couple of them, and, and he's pushing and shoving and trying to get away from him.
1: I don't have the audio of Susan Flores' deposition, but I do have the transcript typed by a court reporter. And here's her answer to the same question. I don't remember all the details. There was a number of students preying on the younger students. It was a 6th, 7th, 8th grade junior high situation. And there was continual stuff going on in that order. And one day there were three of them. And he took three of them on. And one did get kicked. And I don't remember all the details of it. In fact, Both Susan and Ruben seem to have forgotten most of the details.
6: Do you know if the kid that got hurt was hospitalized as a result of the injuries? Do you know the amount of the medical bills that were paid on behalf of the kid that got injured? No, I don't. Uh, Do you know the name of the kid who got injured? No, I don't.
1: Well, I do. His name is Nick Spreitzer. I started looking for Nick months ago, leaving voicemails and emails asking him to share his story. I didn't get a response until last week, when he was introduced to this podcast on a flight home and listened with his wife. He agreed to tell me about the incident, and it's a lot different than Ruben and Susan remember it.
9: Uh, He bullied me with regularity. I was a pretty meek child at that age. You know, wore glasses and, and I remember other kids fixated on that the day of the incident that happened to me was the day I decided that uh, I was going to stand up for myself and it just didn't yield the results I was hoping for. I believe it was happening during uh, a PE class. And what happened was I decided to fight back. Like I said, I, I think it turned into a little bit of a shoving match. And at some point that turned into a wrestling match and we were on the ground and he was stronger than me. So he fairly quickly dominated me. And he sat on my face with his legs outward towards my legs. And um, while he was on my face, I kicked and I apparently landed quite well right in the center of his face. He got off of me and um, got up on his feet rather quickly while I was rolling over onto my shoulders so that I could stand up. But while I was still on my shoulder, he jumped up and stomped on my head. There's no way I could know this because I was hit over the head. Um, I remember being told that he jumped up in the air with both feet off the ground and landed squarely on the side of my head with both feet. Uh, when I told my mother that last night, she remembered it just being one foot. No way to know really which is which. I know I had a footprint on my face, when I was in the hospital from his shoe. But regardless, there was a lot of force to my head and I was knocked out. Um, When I came to, I woke up and there was a crowd of kids standing around me looking confused or concerned. Um, I got on my feet, Flores was gone, and uh, immediately I had several floaters in my vision. Um, My vision went completely gray to the point where I was completely blind. And I had to have a friend of mine walk me to the nurse's office because I couldn't do it on my own. By the time I got to the nurse's office, I couldn't remember my name, my mother's name, my home phone number, but somehow I managed to remember my dad's name and his work phone number. He rushed down to the school, drove me immediately to our pediatrician. Our pediatrician apparently told my parents that that she watched me deteriorate in front of her eyes and basically panicked and said, we need to go to the emergency room right now. So she walked out of her own practice with me and my dad, went into his truck, drove immediately to the emergency room, which I think it was in a short distance away, and um, ran into the emergency room. Uh, by that point, I was losing all motor control. I felt like my arms and legs were just flying around and I, I had no uh, control over them. And my dad didn't even turn the engine off or close the car doors, because I was trying to tell my dad that he forgot to turn the car off or close the doors. And it just came out uh, garbled uh, garbled noises. It just made, made no sense. Then they brought me into the hospital. I, they got me on a, a table or a gurney or, or whatever. And at that point, I managed to ask my father if I was dying right before I really blacked out. And that was uh, horrible for my father to go through because he didn't know. And then I was in and out of consciousness for several days. I was in the hospital for a total of five days. I think it was 72 hours before um, I could answer basic questions about you know, what year it was or what my name was. Apparently I was extremely combative in the um, emergency room that entire time, and they had to put me in a separate A wing of the hospital because I was screaming um, as though I was reenacting the fight while I was in and out of consciousness. The only um, long-term consequence physically that I had, um, I just asked my parents again about this last night, was uh, a dull headache I had for about six months. Paul was suspended from school for a whole three days. The the principal apparently did suggest to uh, one or both of Paul's parents that that he felt he needed to see uh, a counselor for anger management issues, and, and the parents just blew it off. And that's basically the incident.
1: I send Nick a clip of Ruben's deposition, so he can hear his version of the story.
6: Um, did your son indicate to you that he had uh, kicked a person in the head in that altercation?
7: He had kids, when I don't know where he kicked him at. Well, one boy was holding him, and he was trying to get away. He's doing everything he can to try to get away, and one kid got hurt. That is
9: an utter fabrication. It's an an outright lie.
1: Not long after their insurance paid thousands of dollars for Nick's medical expenses, the Floreses left Torrance and moved up to Arroyo Grande, to the same house where Ruben Flores still lives today. So when we're looking for the most likely location of Kristen's body, maybe we're overlooking the most obvious place of all. A few weeks ago, I got an email from a woman who said she was reluctantly contacting me because her niece had listened to the podcast and encouraged her to share her story.
5: Okay, I'm I'm very nervous. I will do my best. So I was working with Susan Flores at Oceana Elementary School as an instructional aide, as was she, when Kristen Smart went missing. And during that week, she had a lot of anger about it. and There was such disdain and hate towards the Smart family, towards the, I think it was sheriffs, not police, whoever was investigating. And that made me mad enough to get involved and try to get as much information as I could to give to the attorney of the smarts. And so I befriended her. And same um, way I started to go to lunch with her, I went to The Graduate to dance with Susan on purpose to meet Ruben, the father. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's kind of when I really, I mean... The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Susan Flores told me he's extremely violent with her, and that's why they got a divorce. What I did is I went to lunch with her, and we'd sit in the car for a half hour. At one time, Susan said to me that she knew how stupid the sheriffs were not to have even searched the avocado grove.
1: Where is the avocado grove? in Ruben Flores's yard, which slopes down the side of a hill. It wasn't searched, and this woman's recollection makes me think of another story I heard several months ago, when Paul Flores' ex-girlfriend told me about the only time she visited Arroyo Grande with him.
2: I wouldn't be surprised if something was buried in his dad's house, his dad has like acres of avocado trees. And I even remember saying, oh my gosh, there's avocado trees, let's walk around. And they're like, no, 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 come inside, come inside. And I, I just always thought, like, after knowing everything, why didn't they look at the dad's house?
1: That's a question that a lot of people have asked. Brenda Gillen, the journalist who was present for the 2007 search of Susan Flores's backyard, wondered that too.
3: She could have been placed in Ruben Flores' yard. I don't know if he still lives in the same place or, or anything. I don't know his situation, but we drove by
9: it and that was quite large and woody. You know, there were a lot of bushes and... It just seemed like there that could be a place.
1: Larry Conyers, the ground-penetrating radar operator, thought the same thing.
8: Now, we we did drive by the father's house, and, and at the time, you've probably been by that house, and it's kind of, as I recall, sitting on a slope of a hill, and, and it is just overgrown with brambles, and there's oak trees, and there's all kinds of stuff, and... It was about a two or three acre piece of property, as I recall. I said, I'd be glad to do this, but we're talking, this is a two week data collection kind of a process. This isn't just go up there and wave your magic wand around and figure out what's there. And, and I said, and before that's going to happen, we're going to have to come in here with a mower and we're going to have to mow all the grass down and get rid of all the, the weeds and the brambles and the probably poison oak and who knows what else is growing in there. And by the time I got done telling them what really needed to be done on the father's property, they 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 were just like any old police department at that point. And I wasn't dealing with a police department, but they acted as like police say, oh, well, that's too much work for us or something. Anyway, nothing ever happened.
1: That glazed-over look in the eyes of people who were officially in charge of finding Kristen is a recurring theme that I've heard from anyone who offered their assistance. The expense of these searches seems to turn them off immediately to the idea, even though members of the community have regularly attempted to donate to the cause or volunteer their time or equipment at no charge. But citizens who offer their help often don't even get a call back.
5: I had called the sheriff's department and left a message with no return call or contact.
1: I've heard this grievance from a lot of people now, reporting information to the sheriff's department that was never followed up on. From my standpoint, an outside observer trying to understand this story without having access to all of the undisclosable files on this case, it doesn't seem like searching locations for Kristen's body is a high priority. From Susan's backyard never being cleared, to Reuben's yard never even being searched, to shoes being left untouched for years right out in the open in rural creek beds. It seems like the sheriff's department is more focused on building their case against the suspect, even if it takes 23 years to do, rather than spending a day or two digging. But it turns out that's not entirely true. In 2011, San Luis Obispo elects Ian Parkinson as its new sheriff. If you were making a film about a new law enforcer who was coming to a small town to save the day, you'd probably cast Parkinson. He's young and handsome with a strong jaw, perpetual stubble, and a well-tailored uniform that he never seems to take off. During his first month in office, he proclaims his commitment to resolving the Kristen Smart case and sets up a meeting with the Smart family. They're thrilled to have a sheriff who will communicate with them, after two administrations who basically left them in the dark about new developments. It looks like things are going to be different with Parkinson. But then, his entire first term goes by with no break in the case. He's elected to a second term, which begins on January 5th, 2015. Finally, the following year, after they've had time to go over the files and all of the evidence is weighed, sheriffs launch a full-scale excavation of the Cal Poly hillside.
9: Now to a possible break in a 20-year
8: mystery out of San Luis Obispo.
1: The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Department and the FBI have
9: begun excavating a remote site below Cal Poly's iconic P
1: sign on the hill overlooking the campus.
10: We're hoping that we find something and we're committed not stopping until we're able to bring this to a closure. The family understands that. I mentioned that it is our hope and desire that this leads to some of the answers that we've been asking for the past 20 years uh, is what happened to Kristen.
1: It's a move that perplexes the community, the university, and even the Smart family. But they remain, in Stan's words, cautiously optimistic. With all of the undisclosed files the sheriff maintains, there's the distinct possibility that they know something the public doesn't. Maybe Kristen Smart has been buried underneath the P this whole time. The P is literally a giant letter P for Polly, constructed in concrete on a hillside that overlooks the red brick dorm buildings. It's a short hike from the last spot Kristen was seen, but it seems like an unlikely place to carry a body in the middle of the night, and it's an area that was searched in the first month of Kristen's disappearance. But at least someone is looking. Since 1996, the Smart family's relationship with Cal Poly hasn't been great. They were never contacted by either of the two successive Cal Poly presidents. Ever. Until September 2017. At one point, administrators offered to put a Kristen Smart memorial bench on campus, in exchange for signing a contract that said Cal Poly was not at fault for what happened to her. and. They reserved the right to remove the Memorial Bench whenever they wanted, without notice. The Smarts declined. Years ago, on a trip to San Luis Obispo, Denise Smart stopped into the Cal Poly Registrar's office and requested a copy of Kristen's freshman transcripts. To her surprise, Kristen was failed in every class she took because she missed her finals. It's a sad legacy for Kristen Smart and an oversight that's never been corrected or even addressed. On September 6th, 2016, Sheriff Parkinson holds a press conference in a Cal Poly parking lot. He's not alone. In addition to sheriff's investigators, he's flown in 25 FBI agents from Virginia
10: to assist in the search. Uh, so good afternoon, I'm Sheriff Ian Parkinson for those who don't know and joining me today Our special agent agent in charge, excuse me, Sean Reagan, here to my immediate left. Next to uh, uh, agent in charge, uh, Reagan, is president of Cal Poly, of course, Jeff Armstrong, and our DA, Dan Dow. So the sheriff's office has been investigating the Kristen Smart case for over 20 years, as you know, and today uh, that investigation has led us back here, where it first began. Uh, the campus of Cal Poly, and that is the place where Kristen was last seen alive, as many of you know. Today, in conjunction with the FBI, we are announcing the excavation project of this location, um, and due to its high visibility, uh, we really decided that it was best just to go ahead and disclose why we're here, rather than you kind of figure it out and and then us answer the the questions after the fact. We uh, have developed this lead over the past couple years and have been working on it. Um, This lead was uh, determined or developed after a comprehensive review of the entire case. And as many of you don't know, with this case going on 20 years, the case is quite large in in size. So it took a a while for the uh, current investigator to get up to speed. That uh, lead led us to uh, this location, Cal Poly. We brought in specialty human remains detection dogs uh, brought in from the FBI out of their headquarters in Virginia using their protocols with their search dogs. Uh, And we brought them in this past January. Several areas of interest were identified uh, up on this hillside. We're not sure where this is going to take us. Uh, Obviously we wanna be optimistic as possible. Um, and we hope that this leads us to either Kristen or evidence of Christian uh... uh Kristen and we'll continue to focus our efforts on other investigated leads as well that we've been continuing to work for those who don't know um, we have uh, over the past several years we have increasingly added more resources to this case um, one because we think that uh, we can bring it to a conclusion but two uh, out of, of Uh, interest in in closing out any unsolved case that we have. We have uh, essentially had a full-time investigator on this case. uh, Deputy, or correction, DA Dow has assigned a uh, a deputy DA to the case. You know, I must stress one important thing that um, we must manage our expectations. And so when we make a Uh, announcement like this that we're doing something. um, Because of the high visibility, we felt the need to do this. I probably uh, do not have in-depth answers for you right now because it's an active investigation, but I'll certainly give my best uh, effort to answer anything that you have. The
1: excavation makes national news and takes four days to complete. The following week.
5: The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office has confirmed that some kind of remains have been found in their search for Kristen Smart's body, but they have not said whether they're from an animal or a human.
10: The Sheriff's Office is stressing that the remains that were found on this hillside behind me still need to be analyzed, and that it's not confirmed that these remains are related to this case.
1: SLO Sheriff's Department spokesperson Tony Capola says the remains will take weeks or even months for an anthropologist to analyze, and officials will not release any further information until then. Four days later, on September 16th, Paul Flores gets his seventh DUI in Hermosa Beach. So maybe they've got him nervous. Maybe it's this part of the press conference, which has never been elaborated on.
10: So we're also focused on other locations. However, we're not disclosing those locations uh, at this time. Uh, because of investigative reasons. Where are those other
1: locations? And were the remains animal or human? Three full years have passed since the excavation, and this is the last official word from September 2017.
3: San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office released this statement regarding the investigation. It reads in part, this investigation remains active, but there are no further updates at this time. We continue to communicate with the Smart family and inform them of developments, which we hope will lead to a successful resolution in this case.
1: So now we're back to waiting. Some people trust Parkinson on this, like Dennis Mann.
8: I think she's on the Hill. Because trust me on this one, Ian Parkinson doesn't care what I think about him, and he
1: doesn't care what you think about him. However, he really does care what his his peers
9: think about him. And in 2016, he flew in 25 FBI agents from around the nation into San Luis and went on national TV. So he's putting his personal reputation among his peers on the line. And there's no way he would have done that unless he had great information. He didn't do that on a whim.
1: He had some powerful, powerful information to say that Kristen's up on that hill. Other people think it was a sham, and some of them have been more outspoken about it than others.
9: He comes into this job, and I think this whole thing has been screwed up from day one, and he has to piece it all together. Well, that's not an easy job, but does it take five years? I don't know. All I know is you wouldn't go digging great big holes at Cal Poly
10: until you cleared the backyard first.
1: Next time.
0: You've been listening to Your Own Backyard, Episode 5, The Pea. Your own backyard is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Lambert. Associate producer is Alexandra Wallace. Special thanks to Dennis Mann, Peter King, Nicholas Winnery, Candace Vanderplas, Derek Payne, Jamie Lewis, Garen Sinclair, Sandy Arnold, April Cole Worley, Carrie Quimby Zenich, Alyssa Brigham, Kaylin Pope, Sydney Brandt, Olivia De Dallas Bronson, Giovanna Sarnicola, and Matthew Frank. If you feel that you have information that could help law enforcement with their investigation, you can directly contact San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Detectives at 805 781 4500. Want to reach out to us directly? Send an email to your own podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at your To keep up with new episodes, subscribe to your own backyard on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Original Music is by Chris Lambert. Wanna help keep Kristen's memory alive? You can donate to the Kristen Smart Scholarship at KristenSmart.org. A note from the Smart family. The statute of limitations in this case has expired on everything except murder. Anyone who comes forward with information will not be charged with any crime.